Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Signal or Noise, episode 21. Charlie Bellello here with me, as always, Peter Malouk. Peter, I'm sure you've noticed this, but it's been a big trend of late. You're calling it the great retirement wave. It started during COVID. You saw a big spike in retirees. They expected these workers to come back. And they did a little bit in 2022 when inflation was high and the stock market was going down. But in 2023, right back to more retirees retiring early, they're saying there's an excess now of 2.7 million more retirees than they predicted using a model of just based on age. And this spread is looking at now 20% in terms of the population that's retired. They expected it to be a percent or more lower. The Interesting question here. There's a number of interesting questions. Are these people ever coming back? And I just looked at a recent poll and only 10% of them said they plan on maybe coming back to work. It doesn't seem like it. And so there's a few interesting questions. Number one is, financially speaking, are these people going to be okay? It seems to be the case that they will be because the increase in net worth, this was another unexpected thing as in the past few years, huge surge in net worth in terms of home prices, in terms of stock portfolio. So a lot of them financially seem to be okay. I'll let you all pine on that. But I think also the bigger question is emotionally, mentally, are they going to be spending their time and finding a way to replace that identity, which for many people resides in what they do for work. You know, it's interesting when we came out of COVID, there was a huge shortage. So you had massive pent-up demand, so more demand for everything. And at the same time, you had two really big factors. You had one group of people that were like, hey, I got bailed out or I got stimulus checks or whatever. It didn't matter if you're a big corporation or somebody getting by, you usually got some kind of payment or buyout. And so a lot of people hadn't burned through that. They'd been trapped in their houses so they weren't going back to work. Some people were trading online and all these cryptocurrencies and all these different speculative investments, meme stocks and so on, were just going through the roof. Why go to work when you're making hundreds or thousands of dollars every week? That subsided and those folks went back into the workforce. But there was a group of folks that were planning to retire over the next few years that decided just not to go back to work. My dad was a great example of this. He was 86 or 87, and he was a practicing internist. He was going to work two more years. And he said, you know what? I'm just not going to go back. Well, that was about 2 million people that accelerated a permanent exit. And that created that gap where we just couldn't meet the needs. So even after all the people trading came back to work, we still couldn't meet the demand. We finally worked through that slack. And now we see this surprising wave of retirements. Now, I don't know what the answer is, but I think you just touched on it, which is the amount of wealth really surged over the last couple of years. Now, in terms of real world wealth, not so much, but on paper, people's investments accounts have gone up since COVID, their home values have soared since COVID. And so if they had a goal of, hey, I need to get to this certain level to retire, they might've thought that was gonna take five years and it took three years, which is why I think we're seeing this next wave of permanent retirements as people have more home equity than they expected. Some of them are going to go sell their home, downsize, and retire for good. So financially speaking, it seems like from running the numbers, these people are going to be fine. I guess the bigger question is what you outlined in this tweet here, that these are the biggest concerns among retirees, a loss of identity, a lack of routine, lack of friends, lack of community, too much TV, financial difficulties, which way down on the list. So I guess the question is, are they prepared for this big shift? Are there certain steps that people should take before, if they're considering retiring, to kind of 
make these less of an issue for people because I guess they could always come back to work. But I think changing that routine, changing that identity that quickly or earlier could have negative ramifications as well. You know, I remember when I saw the research around this and I tweeted about it, I was fascinated by it. The most concern once they're retired is lack of identity, lack of routine, lack of friends. And it makes me think like I had kids when they were leaving eighth grade. I saw some friends that I hadn't seen in a long time. They were people that we'd see at our kids' soccer games and all the stuff that they did with their grade school. And they said, oh, God, I had to develop a whole new friend group. If your kids leave high school, they feel like you need to develop a new friend group. And it's really because they're not really, really good friends, right? They're people that you are just happen to be at the same sporting event with a lot, right? So you get to know them a little bit. And it's the same thing with work. We go to work and we go, okay, well, I've got my job. I've got whatever feelings that are positive for my job. I've got maybe coworkers I really enjoy and I consider them friends, but how many of them are really friends that will transcend the workplace when you're gone? So a lot of people get their brains around, I'm going to leave this work, but they don't get their brains around. But wait a second, all this connection I have, the people I talk to in the morning and have lunch with at the end of the day, how many of those relationships really carry outside of the workforce? And for a lot of people, the answer is not a lot. You almost get into Aristotle's whole thing about friendships, right? The different levels of friendships and the people that do well in retirement. And there's all kinds of research around this are people that have social connections of substance outside of work. So if you've got great family relationships, great relationship with your spouse or significant other, great relationship with your kids, you have your own friends out of there. The transition's very easy. If everything about you, your friendships, your identity, all of that is tied to work you're going to be missing a lot more than your job. And that catches a lot of people off guard. Yeah, sure. So in speaking to people the last few years, have you heard anyone say that they were missing work, they're coming back, just the routine change and their loss of identity and, and doing something meaningful, which for a lot of people, they find meaning in their work. You can certainly find it outside of work. But have you seen anyone say, like for me, forgetting the financial part, but for me, I need to get back and do something, maybe not full-time, but part-time. Oh, I've seen, I can't tell you how many, maybe it's 20% of clients that go back to work. Their retirement is not what they thought it was going to be, and they pivot big time. So I was this very, very, very common. Now, still a huge, very big majority that's perfectly happy being retired. They get through whatever they need to get through, and then they live very happy lives in retirement. But that shift is very, very, very tough shift. It can be like a, a death. It's just a radical shift in your day-to-day. Personally, I love what I do. I can't imagine ever retiring. But for yourself, do you ever think about what would you do outside, let's say? No, I would never. I mean, no, I I just enjoy it way too much. Always in, in some capacity, be involved with financial advice, always. And you could shift, I guess, the day to day in terms of what you're doing. But yeah. But we're blessed to be in a profession where you can do that. Like when my father-in-law was a urologist, he loved practicing medicine. But urology, you can't just decide to do it three days a week. You can't just decide to yeah. do the certain things you like. The cost of insurance and running an out, the baseline overhead is so significant. You have to be all in or you're out. And a lot of professions are like that, where you can't really just ease your way and do things the way you like. Not to mention there's physical aspects as well. I know you're using a standing desk, so that's somewhat physical, but (laughs) (laughs) compared to a lot of jobs out there, we have it pretty easy. Okay. Let's talk about Japan back at an all-time high, first time since 1989. So over 34 years, pretty incredible. Nikkei peaked December 1989, one of the biggest bubbles in financial history. It thereafter declined 82%, didn't bottom until October 
2008. Just pretty remarkable. Forget about lost decade. You're talking about lost decades in Japan in terms of investing. Now, as rallied 459%, the Nikkei back to a new all-time high. A lot of lessons here, and I'll give you my biggest takeaway because this is whenever I post some chart about long-term performance in investing and portfolios, number one comment, and without fail, I can predict it, and this is the only time I ever really look at comments because I love to see it. They say, now show Japan, or what about Japan? And what they're essentially saying by commenting that way is saying, you shouldn't invest because there might be a scenario like Japan where you go decades without hitting a new all-time high. And obviously don't respond to those comments. But if I were, what I would say is the answer in terms of Japan, the answer for investors, if they're facing something similar in terms of an enormous bubble, is definitely not don't invest. It's to diversify and to diversify away from that unique bubble that we saw. And if we look at, I just compared the CAPE ratios here between Japan and the US back at that 1989 peak, 78 was the CAPE ratio for Japan, just an enormous, enormous valuation. US was trading at a CAPE ratio of 18 at the same time. During the dot-com bubble peak, we hit 47 in terms of the US. Today, actually, Japan is cheaper than the US in terms of this CAPE ratio. But for me, that's the number one takeaway that had investors in Japan not succumbed to home bias and not said, this is the best performing market. I want everything here and just invested internationally. Look at the US performance since December 1989, up 10.4% per year, 2,800% return. And there's other takeaways as well. But for me, number one for investors is when you see a bubble, don't view that as a reason not to invest at all. View it as a reason to spread your bets. A hundred percent. It's a case study of home bias. But what you have to look at it is there's basically the category of owning things and lending things. And you look at the category of owning, the number one way to do that is public equities. There's equities in different industries. You shouldn't all be in one industry. There's in different market caps, small and large. You shouldn't be all in one segment. And there's companies in different countries and you shouldn't be all in one country. And there are many examples, not just Japan, many examples of for decades, a country or an industry or a size segment underperforming for an incredibly long period of time. But the global portfolio, that's always worked out. To your point, it's the argument for diversification and being an owner. Right. You're spreading your bet to instead of betting on one sector or one country or one industry or one person, you're just betting on the world being better. 20 years from now. And I think that was a pretty good bet back in 1989. And it's still a pretty good bet today. All right, let's talk about skyrocketing car insurance. You've probably noticed anyone who's watching this or listening has probably noticed. I noticed I got my Geico renewal jumped significantly. I said, is this for real? Uh, I called them. It's for real. It's (laughs) happening everywhere. Even though inflation has come down, we're looking at CPI now 3.1%. So getting closer and closer to that 2% Fed target, core CPI is down to 3.9%, and they're expected to continue to go down, even though many areas have come down in terms of inflation. Car insurance, not one of them, up 20.6% over the past year. That's the biggest increase, Peter, we've seen since the 1970s in terms of year-over-year. Number of reasons driving that, obviously, increased costs in terms of repairs and maintenance. There's actually been more accidents over the past few years. People are driving riskier since COVID. That's a whole fascinating thing in and of itself. 
But put these all together, it's leading to increasing repairs, increasing auto insurance prices. And I just pulled this over the last 10 years, 85% increase in auto insurance prices versus 31% for overall consumer prices. If you look at repairs and maintenance, obviously, if you've taken your car in for repairs, you've probably noticed anything from getting your brakes done or even minimal things has really skyrocketed in price. Who's benefiting from this? We showed this with health insurance recently, but same trend in terms of car insurance, progressive largest publicly traded car insurer in the US up 881% over the last 10 years versus 227% for the S&P 500. What do you make of all this, Peter? And I know at Creative Planning, we do a lot with insurance. It's not just about asset management, especially if you have a lot of different assets, you have a couple of cars, you have homes. Insurance is a big part of that. And we've seen insurance on homes, on autos, on healthcare, everything really skyrocketed. How do you deal with that? How do you find time? It's actually become a way to add, I say, insurance alpha as opposed to investment alpha just by shopping this around. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible what's happening. It probably more now than any time in my career, I'm hearing clients go, what is going on with all of these things? And part of it's just this huge boon of inflation that really hit houses and cars in a big way. Also cars, even if you're driving a $10,000 car, if you get in a wreck, the odds you're hitting a $50,000 car are higher than ever today. Just cars have gotten so ridiculously expensive. I keep waiting for somebody to invent a reliable, safe, inexpensive car. This feels like something that can be invented and that would just overtake the market. I don't know what the deal is there, but that perfect confluence of factors has really just shaken up the market. We also are seeing fewer players too, as more and more carriers are consolidating and some are leaving the market. National catastrophes all over, hurricanes, deep freezes, fires, all of these things have really gotten rid of a lot of competitors and a lot of consolidation. And so you're seeing an oligarchy develop with more expensive cars and homes, and you put all these things together and it's created a perfect storm where rates have just really rocketed. I remember during 2020, they sent you like a little rebate car insurance (laughs) company because you weren't driving your car. Okay, that was nice. I appreciated (laughs) that. But it seems like the increases since then have more than made up for that. And a lot of this is cyclical, right? You see when there's a big loss in terms of insurance companies, then the insurers get out of the market, get out of the business that drives up premiums. And then the opposite we're seeing today with these big increases, probably going to be more competition come in and drive it down. It's a unique area because it's obviously regulated by states. They have to ask the states to approve price increases. And I guess they're proving that they need to. I guess the big question in terms of homes and in terms of car prices, as you said, if they're not coming back down, the insurance costs have to go up. If you want to insure that house that was million dollars and now it's two million dollars just a few years later well if you want to replace that home god forbid there's a fire or something else well you're going to have to pay more right Right. for that and that part might not change yep that's exactly right it's just become a lot tougher yeah so if you're thinking about insurance creative planning here to help now over 300 billion now peter we crossed the 300 billion mark in assets under management and advisement reach out i'll have a link in the show notes We're here to help with not just investments, but insurance, tax, estate planning, everything else as well. So minimum wage, Peter, this is a big topic. We got to have a good discussion about this. Federal minimum wage, I think is 725. Different states have higher levels. California got a lot of attention last year 
raising the minimum wage for certain groups, just fast food workers, and I think some healthcare workers, I think fast food was $20 an hour. But in the Senate race that's going on there, this Representative Barbara Lee is pushing to increase that, not just within California, she's saying the federal minimum wage should be lifted from $7.25 to $50 an hour. And I just read a couple of her comments. She said she used to be a business owner. She understands this might be difficult, but the costs are so high to live in California that they need to raise the minimum wage so people can afford to live there and $50 in her mind, which equates to a little over 100000 a year in terms of entry-level salary, I guess would be in my mind. A lot of different ramifications from this. Before I dig into my opinion on this, what do you make of a $50 minimum wage federally for every state being required to pay entry-level employees, everyone from a high school worker all the way on up to $50 at a minimum? The minimum wage debate is a very legitimate debate. I'm a personal believer there should be a floor. But I mean, $50 an hour, this is not even economics 101. It's before you get to economics 101. I mean, an eighth grader would know that if you had a $50 minimum wage, that a lot of businesses would be closed instantly. I mean, they wouldn't even have to run the math on whether they should close or not. And so that would ultimately be terrible for the type of people that this would theoretically be helping. The key is to have a minimum wage that makes sense but not one that creates massive economic harm. You know, anytime you raise the minimum wage, there will be businesses that have to make changes and some business will have to close. And we can have a legitimate debate about where that line is. Where should the minimum wage be? How much are we helping one group at the expense of another? And you make the best decision of where it should be. This is a line where it would just create an enormous amount of catastrophe with probably zero help. You know, when you really got done with how it would all shake out. What's your take? We've seen a little bit in terms of what would happen. Theoretically, you and I learned in Economics 101, you raise it to the minimum wage, well, demand for that job's going to go up, supply is going to go down, and that gap's going to lead to higher level unemployment. Now, a little bit of an increase, a $1 increase, you might not notice anything, right? And we could debate that. But to jump it from where it is today to $50, without a question, you would see an increase in unemployment. The argument that minimum wage proponents make often is that, well, yes, you might see a little bit, but for the people who still have their jobs, that's going to be great. The problem is that all of the people that are benefiting from getting that entry-level job, you're eliminating that, right? You're assuming that everyone is stuck at that minimum wage forever, which we know isn't the case. Everyone starts out at the bottom and most people move their way up from there. The minimum wage isn't meant to be permanent, isn't meant to be something we're supporting a family on. It's supposed to be something where the employer can train you at that level and still get a return for that. And it's supposed to be a reflection of your skill level. So if you have no skills, you're a high school student, you want a part-time job and you want to get into the labor force and learn, well, what do you expect them to pay you? They should be paying you what that value is. And as you learn and as you increase your productivity, well, then you should be paid more. To me, that's common sense. So we've seen what it's done so far in terms of moving to $20 an hour for fast food workers. And to me, the idea that they should just pick certain industries and set the minimum there, that doesn't make any sense. Why is fast food industry more important than other industries? To me, that doesn't make any sense. But they increased it to $20 an hour in California for fast food companies. 
And what did Pizza Hut do? They laid off all of their delivery drivers. They said, we can't run a business model paying this much for these drivers. So we're just going to eliminate that. And some people would say, okay, that's great. The other people that are still at Pizza Hut are making $20 an hour. But to those people who lost their job, that's a difficult position to be in. And now the subsidy ends up coming from the federal government, right? Or the state government to pay for the person who doesn't have a job. They have to pay for either welfare or unemployment, many other different ways. So to me, the $50 an hour thing is obviously ridiculous. She's defending it. Actually, they pushed her on it. Do you really mean 50? Yes, she does. But the other crazy thing, Peter, is that you say that you're helping the lowest income consumers, but guess what you're doing in terms of, let's say a business is forced to pay this higher than market wage. Well, they're going to at least try to, they may not be successful, but they'll at least try to pass that on to the consumer. So a big part of food, especially eating food away from home in restaurants, the big part of the increases in the past few years has been due to that wage increase. And California is not alone. New York and other states have done big increases as well. And that's driven up the cost of things. I don't know if you saw this. This was in the McDonald's earnings call a couple of weeks ago. The CEO said that they're losing their low-income customers. They're saying they essentially have stopped ordering there because it's becoming too expensive for them. Where Big Mac fries and a drink has risen to $18 at a handful of locations, which is absolutely insane. Used to be a place you could get a quick, cheap meal. Mm -hmm. No longer now, to me, like $18, I can get that at some restaurants, right? And you have service and have to me, a, a much better burger. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're a McDonald's guy, but isn't this part of the problem with the government essentially deciding this is what the wage should be regardless of market forces? I still think there needs to be some minimum wage. And there's a lot of other things coming into this McDonald's math, like the higher cost of fuel, the higher cost primarily of food and everything that goes into that meal on top of labor. I do think that some of this solves itself. Like at McDonald's, you go to McDonald's, there's people that do everything from take your order to make your meals, put it in the drive-thru, take your order in the drive-thru. And we're already seeing in a lot of McDonald's, you walk in and you're at a kiosk instead of someone taking your order. If you go to the drive-thru, it might be AI or someone from another country taking your order at some fast food places. I think we're going to see some of the food, not all of it. I think we're a lot further out than people think. In fact, talking to some clients that run places like McDonald's and others, that some of it will be automated, but not all. Taco Bell's coming out with a fully automated store. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but they that, that's coming out, right? So I think some of that's going to solve itself. You'll have less people, and those people that are working will be making more. But there is that cutoff. Isn't that the argument, though, that it's going to increase automation and increase unemployment and speed up that difficult transition by creating this higher wage? Well, I think we always hear that, you know, like if you think about all the advances with technology, whether it's all the automation, one in two of us was in manufacturing in the 1950s, and now it's one in 10, but we manufacture more and the unemployment's lower now than it was then, right? There used to be 90% of us were in farming about 130 years ago. You know, now it's just a couple percent. They have more production and the unemployment rate's lower than it's ever been. So we tend to advance and people wind up with better jobs. And the unemployment rate miraculously stays low, although there are short periods of time. You see that in Michigan, Ohio, places like that where industrial really got hit. The overall unemployment rate stayed low. The jobs went to the tech sector, but you have kind of a mini depression in one part of the country. Another part of the country is doing well. And that has all kinds of implications that are not positive. But in general, technological advances, 
they tend to work out for everybody. They tend to lower the cost of goods and people have a better lifestyle. No question. But for now, it seems like, yeah, when you go into a McDonald's today, there's very few people to take your order. You got to use those machines, which I'm not a big fan of. But <laughs> McDonald's hasn't lowered the prices. They've increased the prices. They've maintained pretty fat profit margins from it. And the crazy thing to me is that McDonald's trades at a price to sales ratio of more than three times the S&P 500. So I guess investors, to me, this is somewhat irrational, but they seem to be betting this isn't going to hurt McDonald's. These higher prices are either here to stay or consumers are going to have continued demand or automation is going to drive an increase in sales and profits. But to me, that was the most fascinating thing, just seeing the fact that McDonald's has not only been able to keep its market multiple, it's been able to exceed it by 3x. In the past few years, with the increases in prices, they've increased their multiple hugely, hugely. Coming back to the minimum wage thing, I think the other question that really has to be answered is in terms of the balance between government and business, there has to be some relationship reflected in that price because let's say there was no minimum wage at all and the company was able to pay whatever they want. When you have government services that depend on income for those services like healthcare, well, now you could have the situation where the government is subsidizing that corporate employer, right? It is very complicated. Like my personal belief is that the market should determine the wage because who would be better than a business to say what the value of that is? And if people were being underpaid or exploited, they would move to that other business. So it wouldn't be profitable for very long for a company to underpay versus the market in terms of the wage because the people would leave, they wouldn't get very good employees. So it would all work itself out. But I understand the argument in the sense that if there was no minimum, perhaps the employers are going to be piggybacking off of the government, essentially not offering them healthcare would be one example. And then the government, they're making such a low wage that the government would then be paying for it. Yeah, this is one we have a slight disagreement on. But this is a debate that we would have all the time after a few drinks around the kitchen table. The whole idea around should it be a totally free market or not? You and I probably disagree, probably carries over in, in a few different areas too. But I think having some floor, some standard that, that you can have more benefits than down. So, but we could agree the floor should be based on reality. Yeah, not fifty. Yeah, not, not, yeah, I can't. Fifty dollars. That's right. And there might be unintended consequences. I think, like, I love the idea that everyone can make more money. But if you're pushing out entry level workers and their ability to get training and to get started, that might not be a good thing. Right. And we've seen what China's problems with youth unemployment there. We definitely don't want to have that situation here. And in terms of putting in these price controls, that is a risk. That is an unintended consequence. Not a risk if you're increasing it from 7 to $8, let's be clear. Yeah. But to go from $20, which is already high for a lot of these entry-level jobs, to 50 I think that would be crazy, especially for small businesses, right? And she claims that she was a small business owner. I don't know how any <laughs> small business owner could operate under that model. Okay, so let's talk about the Dow here, Peter. Big news. Amazon is in. Walgreens is out. It's kind of surprising it took Amazon to get in there this long. It only increased 178,000% <laughs> since its IPO in May 1997 before the committee who picks the companies in the Dow said, all right, I think it's time 
let's let Amazon in and Walgreens, of course, being pushed out. Why is it being pushed out? Well, they're always being pushed out because they're not performing. Walgreens, since it was put into the Dow, down 58%, was put in in 2018, replaced GE. And somewhat not surprising because this tends to happen. GE actually did much better than Walgreens over this period of time. It actually outperformed. The Dow was up 86% over that period of time. What do you make of this change? And then we'll dig into the Dow and the crazy methodology that it uses. I mean, it is interesting. GE did really terrible, got kicked out, did well. Walgreens did well, got put in, did terrible. And Amazon's done great. Now it's put in. We'll see how it does going forward. But at the end of the day, the Dow, you wind up with 30 of the biggest stocks in the United States. That's enough to be diversified. And despite having a very different methodology than the S&P 500, essentially gets to pretty close to the same place over time. Which is kind of amazing, isn't it? That it's just using the price, which is investing 101. The price doesn't mean anything, right? It depends on the number of shares. And a company can split, which Walmart is actually splitting. I think this week, mm -hmm. it's 3% weight is going to be reduced because of that in the Dow. And that seems asinine, seems crazy. Like United Health is the biggest company in the Dow at 9%, much bigger than Apple's weighting at 3%. That doesn't make a lot of economic sense. But when you look at the actual return of the Dow compared to the S&P 500, highly, highly correlated, well over 90% correlation. And the Dow ETF started in January 1998, and it's actually outperformed the S&P 500 over that period of time. I would not have guessed this. Kind of remarkable, kind of proves that monkey throwing darts, and if you pick 30 stocks, you might be able to do just as well as the index, and especially if they're the 30 largest. Yeah, and these are both U.S. indexes, large cap stocks. So when you own the Dow, you're getting 30 of the biggest stocks in the United States, S&P 500, 500 of the biggest. But that shows how correlated the overall large cap U.S. market is over time if you owned a basket of securities. Just remarkable to me, the price thing, because you could think of almost anything else looking at revenues, or net income, anything else that you probably could weight these companies based on other than price, that would make sense. But yet they're sticking to the share price. I mean, I guess one day maybe they'll consider putting Berkshire Hathaway class A shares and then that'll just become the entire <laughs> Dow in terms of its price. <laughs> okay. Speaking of big cap and speaking of tech, signal or noise here, Peter, this is a story that just continues because the Magnificent Seven, dominated this year by NVIDIA and Meta, but continues to drive these top 10 holdings percentage higher. We're now at 32.5% for the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500. That's a record high. We've got data going back to 1980. What do you make of this? Is this a signal or just noise? I have no idea. I think, I, I think it doesn't matter at all. I'll be curious to see what your data <laughs> says on this, Charlie. So the data doesn't suggest that this is necessarily a bearish signal. Now, we have not a huge sample here, only going back to 1980, but we've had a few interesting time periods, right? So you could see in the early 1980s, this was very high and there was a little bear market, but very quickly it recovered and you had enormous returns during the 1980s. And if you look at the second peak there in 1999, 25.5%. Well, then people would point to that and say, well, maybe that was a signal there because we had a decade of no returns for the S&P 500 following that. But recently, we've exceeded those by a wide margin, which is A, to show you that there's no threshold, there's no peak to this. It could get more and more concentrated. 
and we're now well over 30%. So the way I look at it in terms of predicting how the overall stock market will do, let's say going forward, probably not a great predictor, but I think it's another reflection of that relationship between large caps and small caps that we've been talking about that is very, very stretched. So I would not be surprised if we saw something similar. We saw in the 1980s, small cap outperformance following this peak. 1999 peak, we saw small cap outperformance. And perhaps, we keep saying it, perhaps it's coming. We're going to see the average stock start to outperform over the next decade. And we don't know what the threshold is. And there may not be a threshold. If we look at international, and this is something interesting that I pulled here, this is the 15 largest stock markets around the world. Well, the US compared to pretty much every other one except for Japan is less concentrated than these other markets. You look at Ireland, the top 10 stocks there, 80% of the MSCI index, Switzerland, 67%, UK is at 49%. So there's nothing to suggest this can't go higher. I think just historically, we always had the US as the least concentrated, most diversified economy, makes sense, most diversified in terms of sectors and businesses. So it makes sense that it would be lower. But could this go to 40% perhaps at some point in time? I guess it comes back to that same question that we have in terms of the valuations of big tech that's driving this. Are they going to be sustainable or are there going to be new leaders that we're not thinking of? Yeah, I mean, looking at some of these two, there's a story behind the story of comparing Ireland to the US. Ireland would be comparable to like Cincinnati, right? And Switzerland to Boston. And these are small economies. And so it's not surprising. It's like saying, hey, there's 10 stocks dominate Cleveland, Ohio, or 10 stocks dominate Orlando, Florida. That's not surprising. I think in the United States, some of these are very comparable, India, China, and so on. And so it, I think it could go higher, but if it got anywhere near some of these countries, it'd be very, very alarming. Yeah. It would just mean that competition isn't there. It's coming back to that same question, right? If there's a business that's doing that well, either it's A, becoming a monopoly, or B, there's some type of barrier to entry that's preventing competitive forces from coming in. So I think all else equal, if you had to choose, you would say it's better for this to be lower, you would want a more diversified market, but certainly not a signal, outright sell signal saying, oh, if it hits 30%, oh, that means the market's going to crash. I think it'll be interesting looking back 10 years from now if this is a signal in terms of large and small cap US stocks. All right, we'll leave it there. I covered a lot of ground today. Thanks everyone for joining us. If you're watching this on YouTube, we're also available on Apple, Google, Spotify, everywhere else. And we'll see you next time on Signal or noise. This show is designed to be informational in nature and does not constitute investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that the future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy, including those discussed on this show, will be profitable or equal any historical performance levels.